really battling against two extremes. One was the Roman Catholic extreme when it came to the teaching of this, which meant that if you went through the motions, if you did it, whether you had faith or not, whether you're even awake or not, it, if the priest had blessed it, you, you got grace from it. Boom. The other extreme was the Quaker one, which wrote off anything physical, anything like this because it just wasn't spiritual enough. If if Christ lives in you, if the word is in you, why do you need to take uh, these remembrances? Right? And and of course the biblical truth and, and what, what our Baptist forefathers and, and many other true Christians were pursuing was the right balance between making use of the act for spiritual profit. It's not automatic and it's not doomed to failure. <laughs> um, we must approach these things in God's way with faith, but always dependently. Right? God, God is sovereign in all of our salvation, and there are times when we come by faith and he gives us much, and other times perhaps he gives us little, and it, it's up to him. Um, not every time a man raised a staff did the waters part. But we do have this promise, if we come with faith, God will, God will bless us. And so we, we want to do it well, not trusting in the ordinance or our keeping of the ordinance or even our faith, but in the God who promises to use this means, this instrument, to grow us, to, to preserve us, to keep us abiding in Christ. All right? All right, so here's question 105. What is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. That's the first thing. Next, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Here's another example, less extreme, but how the same event can mean salvation or destruction. They're all around us in life. The Lord's Supper can function this way as well. It can be the water in Noah's study. It can be the Red Sea in Moses' story. It can be, right? Here it is again. All right, question one, are there requirements for taking the Lord's Supper? The short answer is yes, its owner has set requirements. 1 Corinthians 11.20 says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You and I don't own the supper. The church doesn't own the table. Christendom, in some sense, doesn't. It is the Lord. And this is not the standard word, kurios, for Lord here. This is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And it's used in two um, very special and meaningful contexts. One is the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10. This word, kuriakos. And it... it it means Lord, but the emphasis is on absolute ownership. This is the table owned by 
Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He is the owner of this table, and he owns it in the same kind of way that he owns the Lord's day. All right? So he determines as the Lord, as the master, as the owner, who is invited to the table, who is served at this table. He determines who is a worthy receiver. This is why we fence the table regularly. We believe that the New Testament teaches that the person must be a believer and obedient in in matters of baptism and being joined to a local church and in living um, in obedience and peace with their brothers and sisters. Not perfection, but obedience and peace. Um, so the specifics of the requirement of being a Christian walking in obedience is, is what's worked out in the, the following questions. All right? So, first of all, yes, there are requirements for taking the Lord's Supper. They are set by the owner of this table. You and I do not own this table. He does. And he is the Kuriakos. He is the Lord. Question two. What is the first step toward worthy partaking? Well, the first step is self-examination. 1 Corinthians 11.28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Before participating, self-examination is in order. Well, what is it for persons to examine themselves? The answer is to make to make a strict inquiry into and to pass an accurate judgment about our own spiritual standing. Right? We need to look at our hearts. We need to examine our faith. We need to, we need to determine whether or not we really meet Jesus Christ's a definition, as it were, of, of being a Christian of being one who is in union and fellowship with him. Back in Lamentations, chapter 3 and verse 40, we are urged in general as believers to examine our ways and test them. Psalm 119.59 says, It is the practice of those who follow God to consider our ways. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. These are just general examples of how believers do, for various purposes, self-examination. Well, why should they do that? And who should do that? And how often should they do that? Well, many answers might be given to that. But 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And that's fundamentally what's in view here. I don't think this is meant so much as a fishing expedition to root out every imaginable sin that you can possibly find and to spend three days before every Lord's Day focusing on that so you can come pure. Now, it's absolutely right 
to, on a regular, even daily basis, examine ourselves and confess our sins to God. But the, the main thrust here seems to be whether or not we actually recognize this as the table of the Lord. Is he our Lord? Are we in right relationship with him? Has he welcomed us there? Do we recognize him in these two elements? In other words, we ought to examine our faith, whether or not we have eyes, spiritual eyes, to see Christ here. Not perfectly, not without sin. You know, it, it clings to us. But really, sincerely, truly, all right? So the first step is self-examination. And, and that's something that we need, to, we need to make a habit of. You know, we need to remember, we must not come to the table just without any forethought, uh, but with a, a, with a purpose, with a clarity of mind about what we're about to do, right? All right, uh, question three, what is the knowledge to discern the Lord's body? Because that's what we're to examine ourselves for, according to the verse in 1 Corinthians. What is the knowledge to discern the Lord's body? The short answer is, it's recognizing Christ and his saving work in the sacrament. It is recognizing Christ and his saving work in the sacrament. According to verse, uh, verses 23 to 26, the supper is done in remembrance of Christ. It is a proclamation or a memorial of Christ's death. The point is that the Lord's Supper is not a religious ritual that is meant to be done mindlessly. Like every sacrament, it is a sign. It points to something beyond itself. And you must examine yourself whether or not you can see past the bread and the wine and see Christ. This is why we want to be very, very careful with young children when it comes to the supper. Do they understand what's going on here? Well, when they're young, it's good to regularly explain to them what's going on so that when they're older and they do believe and they can come to the table, they are helped to do that. The bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Christ. And since this is the case, to come unworthily to the supper is, according to verse 27, to sin against the body and blood of Christ. We're not sinning against bread and wine. <laughs> We're sinning against what it actually points to, Christ himself. So closely tied is God's appointment, in God's appointment, are the sign and the reality that to come unworthily to the physical supper is to sin against the death of Christ. So we ought to examine ourselves and make sure that we are recognizing what this supper is all about. Christ's death for his people and all of the benefits that he gained for them. The following is a, a sacramental point that Baptists and Paedo-Baptists generally agree upon, and that is that infants and small children shouldn't partake of the supper because 
they really can't meet this requirement. Adults and everyone with capacity, they can, at least theoretically, and, and so they ought to um, be quite motivated to learn about you know, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the offices of Christ, the accomplishments of Christ as the Messiah. The, key, the, the, the knowledge to discern the work of Christ is what's in view in this supper. All right? And so a person must be able to do that. So this is the knowledge to discern the Lord's body. It's recognizing that all of this at the physical table points to the um, spiritual work of Christ. All right? Question four, must a worthy partaker come with faith to this supper? Well, the answer should be obvious, right? Yes, both to come to the table and to be nourished uh, at it. Remember, this is the Lord's Supper, and he may invite whom he will. Those whom he invites to this church ordinance are the church, those who by faith are connected to him. And so this is a family meal. So when we come as believers, how should we examine ourselves in regard to faith? Well, first by applying the, the, the general principle that we quoted earlier, examine ourselves to be sure we have faith, that we're in the faith. We should ask the question, do I belong here? Am I a believer, a man or a woman of faith? Does Christ truly invite me to this table? But secondly, and more directly, in view of the catechism answer, am I a believing one? Am I now continuing to be believing? <laughs> and so when Christ is offered at this table, can I take him and his benefits and, and apply them to myself? Can I take Christ's promised forgiveness? Can I make my vows to him? Can I rest in his work displayed on the table alone? And of course, if, if we believe, then by the, if we have faith, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do these things. We can exercise faith. All right? So, we, we must come to this supper with faith. It's not enough to have come to Christ in the past with faith, if we truly came, then we will still have faith and we can approach this table with faith. But we must approach these symbols of Christ, or to put it more directly, we must approach Christ again with faith. Every time we approach him, we must come in faith. And that's true in this sacrament. Question five. Is repentance necessary to properly take this supper? Yes, in several ways. First of all, of course, repentance is one of the ways that true faith is demonstrated. A person who says, oh, I have faith, but nothing changes in their life. No sin is put off and no righteousness is put on, does, doesn't have true faith. They don't understand it. right? But a faith that looks to Christ looks away from sin. It looks away from self. So that's the first way. We must come with repentance because it demonstrates true faith. But secondly, because um, uh, repentance 
is a mourning for our sins. Remember those sins that brought the suffering represented by the table on our Lord. Uh, it was our sins that crucified him. And surely with this kind of humility, this is really the only way to take the supper. Can we really contemplate our Lord's death without recognizing that our sins, that we crucified him? He was there because of us. Again, it would surely be shameful and ungrateful in the extreme to treat our sins lightly by not repenting of them in preparation for the supper and even at the time of the supper. Mourning for sin is not our only business at the supper, and, and you must not overemphasize that in your practice. But surely it's one of the things that we should be doing in the supper. Well, a third, a third way that repentance is necessary at the supper is to avoid temporal punishment from God. Right in 1 Corinthians 11.31, it says, If we judged ourselves, if we looked at ourselves and saw our sin and confessed it to God and repented of it, we wouldn't come under judgment. The supper was meant to be beneficial to you, brothers and sisters, not an occasion for sickness or death, not an occasion for chastisement or punishment, or as the old King James says, damnation. Repentance removes judgment. So don't come lightly to the table if you haven't come with a contrite heart. Occasionally people will say, well, you know, I, I think those people who didn't, you know, in Corinth who did that weren't, weren't real Christians. Well, I'm not sure if we can know that or not. That doesn't happen to be my opinion. But even if so, all that proves is that people can come to the supper and think they're real Christians and not be. I mean, we don't want to be in that class either, right? We don't want to be found in that group of people. I think more likely this is simply what the text, I think, plainly says, that this is a chastisement for the people of God. If they habitually, in, in the case in Corinth, they, um, they disdained their brothers and sisters. Uh, it was so bad, their sin was so great, uh, that Paul says, this isn't even the supper you're eating. They, they destroyed it, they'd undermined it. And so God punished them for destroying the supper. All right. All right, question six. Is love a qualification for right participation? Yes, love in two directions. Love for Christ and love for each other. First, for Christ. Again, how can we not come? Just like, how can we not come in faith? And how can we not come in repentance? How can we not come in love to Christ, to this table of the one who so loved us that he gave his own life for us? In order to set this table, he died. That's how much he loved us. And so we love him for this. We love him back. We love him because he first loved us. That's illustrated at the table. But secondly, we must have and we must practice love for one another. Again, the fundamental sin that Paul rebukes in Corinth in regard to the Lord's Supper was lack of love for each other. Divisions, despising, humiliating. Those are some of the words he uses. 
The lack of love was so strong that even though they came together ritually to take the supper, it wasn't the supper. It was their own supper. And so there was not grace. There was only judgment. The symbolism of the one bread, according to 1 Corinthians 10.17, is unity. That's part of what this is supposed to portray. It's why our little separate cups and our little pieces of bread, they need to change. Somehow we need to do better with that symbolism. They don't portray this well. What does he say? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. We all partake of one Christ. We don't have multiple Christs. We have one Christ. But the Corinthians' lack of love destroyed that symbolism. So yes, love is very much a qualification for coming to the supper. Question seven, will new obedience be found in worthy partakers? Again, of course, you know the answer. It is yes, because it shows the sincerity of our faith and our repentance and our love. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. As we preached last week, the fulfillment of the Passover is Christ, who was a sacrifice for our sins that we might be a new batch. And we are a new batch so that we can give sincere and true new covenant obedience to God. Obedience from a right motive and in accordance with God's word. So, of course, new obedience will be found in worthy partakers. Um, and one of the things that we can do is, is give ourselves again to God and, and, and vow to him um, our new obedience. Um, Lord, help me again in this coming week to live up to uh, my calling. Okay. Well, question eight. Is there a warning against coming unworthily? Yes, there's a threat of judgment. We've mentioned it several times already. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29, 30, 32, and 34. This is a temporal judgment seen in bodily afflictions and death. And perhaps, if God's mercy didn't intervene, uh, in eternal judgment. Now, I, I don't think there's any reason in the text, any reason in the reasons given, to think that this warning was purely for the Corinthians. Um, it's in Scripture for every church following the one in Corinth. And so if we're in the habit of coming too casually without any real sense of need for Christ, in purposed hatred, and conflict with brothers and sisters, refusing to uh, to come together and try to work things out, or when we are just utterly committed to 
going on in our sin and we have no intention whatsoever to stop, well, we, we, need, to, we need to turn from those things because, because judgment uh, hangs over us then. And as Paul says, let's judge ourselves so that we don't have to be judged by God. Right? Every Christian, that's how they get to heaven. Calvin's rather famous for saying this. You can either judge yourself in this life, you, you can condemn yourself in this life, or you can let God condemn you in the next. Those are the only two choices any human being has. So brothers and sisters, let us condemn ourselves in this life so that God will not condemn us in the next life. Even in things like this, where the condemnation may just be um, a kind of fatherly discipline. Now, for those of you, and, and this may be many of you, who, um, who find th these verses really frightening. You know, your problem isn't pride. It's, it's an over-meekness. It's a, it's a fear that you, you never come to the table in a worthy manner. You never have enough faith or repentance or good works or love. And, and how could you possibly benefit from this? I mean, wouldn't God, any time you came to the table, if you're of that kind of makeup, if those are your struggles, hear me clearly, coming unworthily is not the same thing as coming in weakness. Coming in a proud refusal To follow Christ's rule about these things is not the same thing as coming, recognizing your, your sin and your weakness, perhaps your repeated failures. Pastor, here I am again. <laughs> I'm having the same conversation with God before the supper I had last week and the week before. Oh, and you keep coming, brother or sister. Because what you're confessing isn't hard-heartedness. You're confessing weakness. And that's precisely who Christ helps. Jesus Christ never threatened the meek. Oh, he threatened the proud, the self-righteous. But he never hurt in the least way, smoking flax, the, the, the tiniest little ember of faith, he's not going to snuff out. So you come. If you don't want to stay in your sins, you come. Those are the qualifications for a believer to the table. All right? 